Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to jump right into Philippians. We're in chapter 4, and I've got to confess. You know, here's my philosophy on preaching, just so you know this. When I preach, I'm never preaching to you. I always assume I'm preaching to myself. And this week, that's really true. I'm not saying it's not true, true other weeks. You know, it's pretty true. But, but what I try to do in, in communicating is not to assume you have the problem, but to assume that first I need to apply this to myself. And that's kind of where I rest and stand. And I'll tell you, this week, when it comes to this passage, failure. Just want to let you know your pastor is a failure when it comes to this passage. Because, see, sometimes what God does in his grace, and it really is his grace, he leads us into the challenge that's going to apply the text and so when you're sitting here and sometimes people say, are you listening to my mail? Are you in my house? That's because the Spirit of God and His grace and love for you is applying the text, that text for that week to your life. So as we jump into this, I just want you to know that I'm walking into this with, um, in my sense, a sense of fear and trembling and humility, knowing that I need the grace of God to apply it to my life. But here's the good news. If you're weak, that's when he's strong. That's when he's strong. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter Four. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and go down to verse 7. The word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, can I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Father, we invite you as we have in this place to recognize your authority, your sovereignty over us. We demand so much. And yet, Father, you demand our obedience, our allegiance, our love, our heart, because you are worthy, Father, to be obeyed. And so in this moment, as we come before your word, we just in humility lay our arguments down. We lay our brokenness down, Father, just to hear your voice and through that to apply truth in a way that leads to life. I thank you, Father, that in your, in your coming through Jesus Christ, you came to condemn sin, but not to destroy us. That as you addressed our wrong, Father, you did it even to the Pharisees in such a way to bring them life. Your truth is never to crush or to kill or to steal no, you want us through this passage to have life and life abundant in your name. So, Father, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, would you allow your voice and your truth to come with power. In Jesus' name, amen. So I plead, imagine this. Okay, imagine this. You're in a room full of about 30 people, 30, 40 people. You're in Lydia's house. Lydia's 
one of the first to come to faith in Philippi or in this community. Epaphroditus shows up. He brings this letter with him. And you're excited to hear from Paul. You're excited to see Epaphroditus. If you don't remember, Epaphroditus was a guy in Philippi, came to faith. He traveled all the way to Rome to take care of Paul, who's now in prison in Rome. He's come back with this letter. It's called the book, the letter to the Philippians. He's brought that to your church in Lydia's house. And imagine Lydia's house is not, you know, 3,000 square feet, folks. This may be 12 at the most, you know, with like two layers, you know, up and down. Maybe at most. And here you are with 30, 40 people, and you hear your name. I plead with Jason. I plead with Bill. Plead with Susan. I plead with Euodia and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord in front of the entire community. Because, see, when there is conflict in the church, it's not between two people. The implications of that conflict in the body of Christ affects everyone. Now, in a room like this, we're not going to call out anybody, so don't worry about it. Because, see, that's a smaller context, that relationship. Those people knew of this conflict that was happening. And so as we jump into this passage, what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about what it looks like to stand firm, having our hopes set not on the things of this world or how things work out today, but rather in chapter 3, he says, we eagerly await, bless you, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he comes is going to transform our lowly bodies so that we, they will be like his glorious body. And so he says, this is our hope. A day is coming when the things that are broken in this world are going to be set right. Now, that's not today. And for Paul, that's definitely not today. Because realize, as we read this letter, Paul is in prison. He doesn't know what his future holds. He, bless you, too. It's contagious. Anybody else? He, he doesn't know what his future holds. He doesn't know if execution is to come into his life or he's going to be set free. And so notice this in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice the language that he uses as he speaks about the way that we are to live in this world. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. All of chapter 4 is a, a picture of what it means to stand firm. Now, this is language that Paul has used often in the book of Philippians. If you go back to chapter 1, in some ways to the main idea of this text, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, you know, live your life uh, worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. And then he tells us to stand firm in one mind, in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That as we live this life, we are to contend for the gospel, meaning we're supposed to be a reflection of the gospel. A reflection of the gospel in how we do conflict. A reflection in the gospel of how we deal not with relational conflict, but sometimes with circumstantial conflict. Not being anxious about anything, but remembering the Lord is near. And therefore, praying to God with thanksgiving. He says, hey, stand firm. Now, if you remember, and it was a long time ago, so it's okay, but stand firm in the Greek is a term that was used to apply to soldiers. When soldiers would stand firm before an army and advancing army, they would stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side. The goal in that was not to tear anyone down, it was to build each one of them up. That if someone was weak next to you, left or the right, each one would stand shoulder to shoulder to stand firm. And Paul is saying when it comes to the Christian life, that is our posture in the world. Now, be careful, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, before we get there, notice the language that Paul uses to describe the church. He says again in verse 1, whom I love... My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Twice, he says, whom I love. And at the end, he uses this word, agapeo, or I, I, actually, I lost it. It's not in my head. It comes, anyways, it's a really great word. It comes from the word agape, and he uses it twice, whom I love. And at the end, he says, my beloved, meaning I really love you guys. And see, I think that is the, a pastor's heart for a church. There's this unique thing that God does over time in the heart of an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, is they fall in love with the congregation that they serve. They fall in love because God has fallen in love with them, and they love them in a way that they want to see God's fruit and life work through them. That's what Paul's saying. He is a good shepherd. And then notice, you are my joy. Anyone in your life your joy? They walk in the room, smile, joy. Now realize, who's he describing as his joy? People who are in conflict. So when you imagine the person who is your joy, there's someone you're in conflict with. That's what Paul's saying. You are my, even though there are challenges and there are trials in your life, you're my joy. And then he says, you are my Stephanos. Anyone named Stephen in here? I think there's somebody. Anyways, Stephanos, Stephanos means my crown. And the idea is a Stephanos was a wreath that they would place on the winner's head when they were crowned at the end of the games, at the end of a competition, end of a race, the emperor would actually allow this wreath, this Stephanos, to be placed over their head. And he's saying, guys, you're my gold medal. You're my reward. See, that's not only a shepherd's heart, that's a parent's heart. And when you think of your kids, what's your, your reward? Parents, I mean, what's, what's our reward? Our reward is our kids grown up. You know, I know that's hard, but our reward is seeing my son, Nate, and Bryce walking with the Lord, being the men, uh, being the women that God has called them to be. That is our reward. Paul's using that same parental language to us. And see, that's the language that we should really have also for each other. It's a language that God produces in us. And so he's gonna, what he's going to do is he's going to start talking about how do we stand firm. Well, we're going to really have a challenge because there's a lot here, but in verse 2, he's going to talk about this conflict between these two people. And I love these names. I entreat Euodia, which actually means luck. I treat luck. And then Syntyche in the, in the Greek, the Greco-Roman gods of luck and success. That's what he's saying. I entreat the gods of luck and success. That's what they were named after. Because see, back then, names had meanings. It wasn't just because they sounded nice. And, and these were obviously women who were uh, grown up in a Greco-Roman society and worshiped the, the pantheon of gods, of luck and success. And so he says, I am treating you luck and success, Yodi and Syntyche, notice, to agree in the Lord. Now that's important. It doesn't mean to be unified on all things. That's weird. If you go to a church that's unified on all things, it's called a cult. <laughs> Just to let you know. You know what I mean? It's like everyone says the same thing. It, that's, that's, that's weird. To agree in the Lord does not mean to agree on how we're going to agree. It means to agree on the destination. And what's the destination? Jesus said to us, if your brother has something against you, go and address it. If you have something against your brother, go and address it. Pray for your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Be gentle in all things. Those are the things we agree on. Now, how do we get there? That's a totally different issue. So I've been to Estes Park once, but I know there's two ways to get there. 
Because I asked some people, we went to Estes Park, and the grace of someone gave us a place to stay, and, and we went there, and I asked some people, I said, well, how do you get to Estes Park? Well, some people said, no, what you got to do is you got to go down the hill, right? You got to go through Golden, and then you go through Boulder, and then you head back up the hill into Estes Park. And then someone else said, no, 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 Jason, listen, that's not the way to go, man. Listen, you've never been there. You've got to drive by Long's Peak, right? That's the stuff. You've got to go by Blackhawk. You want to go through Nederland, see the dead guy. You guys know about that? It's a dead guy. Anyways, I, I don't know anything about You want to go that way because then you get to drive along Long's Peak, and it's 15 minutes longer, but listen, that's the way to go. See, agreeing the Lord means to get to Estes, but we don't have to agree upon how we get there. That's kind of up to us. He's saying, I want you to agree on the end result, which is unity in the body of Christ. That's more valuable. So jump back in, verse, verse 2. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. And to be honest with you, we don't know who this guy, true companion, is, which is kind of helpful. He says, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow Workers. Now, notice something. He says, I ask you, verse 3, true companions, someone in the church. Because notice, the problem between these two women is not just the problem between these two women. It's a problem in the church. See, Christ came and he resolved. He was a mediator. We had enmity between us and God. And Jesus took responsibility. He stepped into that place in humility, reconciling the two. And now, church, we have a ministry. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. Now, how do you do that? Well, notice, Paul doesn't take sides. And he doesn't diminish the conflict. He doesn't say, get over it. <laughs> Something I love to say, <laughs> right? Hey, just get, just, no, he's, he says, I entreat you, Oda, but he also says, I entreat Syntyche, both of you, both of you, and then I also entreat the church, loyal yoke fellow, we don't know who that is, that could be you. It could be you who's addressed the, the plank in your eye, because see, sometimes when you're in conflict with someone else, it's really hard to take the plank out or even see it. Why? Because there's emotions, anger. Frustration, rage, sadness, whatever. And then all that past lies and junk that just loves to sit in that and stew in that conflict, all that junk. There's somebody in this body who's already addressed that plank in their eye, and they, which means they can walk towards both of these individuals with humility. And say, this isn't, hey, I care about you. I want to see this accomplished. Because see, in the body of Christ, it's not just the conflicts between two people. It's the conflicts in the body of Christ and what that says about God that's more important than the conflict itself. You track in with me on that? And it's not just the conflict, it's what that conflict says in the body of Christ because we are to be a reflection of the gospel. And notice, these are two women who serve by Paul's side in the work of the gospel, which means, it means these are servants. They may even be mature, so don't be surprised when maturity finds conflict. It's okay. It's okay. We are broken and sinful. When conflict comes up in the church, listen, it happens all the time. i just let you know, okay? It does. It happens all the time. As someone who's been in ministry for a long time, I've caused a lot of it. I have. I mean, I was a fool in the beginning. I thought, hey, I'm in charge here. This is how it's going to work. It's like, no, Jason, you're not. The Holy Spirit is, and you need to be quiet right now. Conflict happens, and it happens in places of maturity. But see, it's happening in places of maturity not just to address the conflict, but so that we might see the Lord. 
You know, conflict is a gift of God's grace. If you see it that way. That, I don't, you remember the story, Luke chapter 8, I think it's in Luke, it's in, it's in Mark. Uh, the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and they're, they're pretty terrified. The storm just comes out of nowhere and it's coming down upon them and Jesus is having a nap, he's having a siesta. You know, he's, he's in the front of the boat, back of the boat, he's as quiet as can be. And they turn to him, it's Luke chapter 8, uh, 25, and, and, and they're like, Jesus, don't you realize what's happening? Don't you understand the, the chaos that we're in? And he says, and it's interesting, where is your faith? Now, why would he say, where is your faith? Because it's standing right in front of him. Meaning, what is the object of your faith? The purpose of that storm, that incident in the disciples' life, was not about God overcoming all the storms in your life. I know it's applied that way. It's about who Jesus is in the storm. He's your peace. He can calm it. Now, the storm may still rage on. It may not be resolved, but if you know where your faith is anchored, there's peace in that. Even if the storm continues on, even if the storm in the end takes you, I still know where my faith and my hope is found. See, in the midst of those, those chaos, that, that destruction, it's the opportunity by God's grace to know who he is and to rely on him. That's why scripture's just loaded with this stuff. James, consider it joy whenever you face trials. I mean, all of us are that way, right? We love that. This is wonderful. Consider joy whenever we face trials because, you know, the testing of your faith, it develops something. It develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete. Without conflict, we don't get to a place of maturity. And then in Peter, he says, in this you rejoice, meaning in our salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, that perishes though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then get this, though you do not see him now, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Where does all that happen? In trial, in conflict. Paul's saying we need to live out the gospel in unity. You know, there's something, there's a guy named Leslie Newbigin. Uh, he was a, a British scholar, Christian. He went from the UK to India. And he went to India. And at that time, he, I think it was the 30s, the 40s, uh, Europe was still somewhat of a, a Christian continent. Uh, certainly, the, England was still pretty much a, a Christian nation in some ways, if, you, if a nation can be Christian. Anyways, um, so he goes to India, and he comes to this very pluralistic society, uh, believing in many different gods. And, and so he was there from the 30s to the 70s, and then he travels back, and all he takes back are two suitcases. He takes buses back. This guy's crazy. Uh, you know, had nothing, just kind of set everything aside. He comes back to the U.K., and he's, he's, uh, he, he realizes that those 40 years, whatever happened after the, the World War II, it, Europe was just as secular. It was just as disconnected from God, disconnected from Jesus Christ. And so he wrote this book, um, and, and let me look at my notes. And in it, he talked about a gospel hermeneutic. And this is one of the first thinkers to really think out how do we engage in our world in a way that reflects Christ. And this book is called The Gospel in a Plural, Pluralistic Society. And there's this beautiful chapter called A Gospel Hermeneutic. And he talks about this. He says, the community of the church is to be a reflection of the gospel in word but also in deed. 
So people don't get the gospel in words sometimes. They look at it and say, I don't understand Jesus dying, rising again. I really don't get it. But see, when a community takes Jesus at the center and they live out his commandments, people will see a new kind of community in their community. A community that forgives, a community that is generous, a community, as he's going to command us, is gentle. A community that is not anxious about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving and prayer, presenting their request to God. He says there is a gospel hermeneutic. When Jesus is the center and we're worshiping him, we're a reflection of what we proclaim to the community, which means we have to be obedient to his word. Obedience is not an option. Obedience is a part of the discipleship process of following God, of following Jesus Christ. When we do that, we are a reflection of the beauty of the majesty of God so that people that don't get the gospel, they'll look at the church and say, okay, I kind of get it. I don't agree with you, but I see generosity. I see patience. I see humility. I see love. I see forbearance. I see all of these qualities that I wish I saw in the rest of the world. I see in the church and it is a hermeneutic for the gospel. Do you see that? That's what Paul's calling these two women to. He's saying you need to be a reflection of the gospel, not a reflection, Jason, of what you want or what you think you've lost. That needs to die on the cross with Jesus. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. And when it's about the glory of God, it's about your joy. So the first thing he says, we need to live in harmony. We gotta roll on this. So let's jump down to the next one, verse four. How do you do that? How do you stand firm? Rejoice in the Lord. Notice the language. How often? Always, whether you're heading to the emergency room and the news is bad, that applies. Now, why in the Lord always? Well, because that's your strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's not saying that what you're experiencing is good, but if your anchor is in the Lord, he's gonna sustain you through that trial. Rejoice in the Lord always. Understand, this is not saying feel happy thoughts or feel happy feelings. Can you feel happy thoughts? I don't think you can. Feel, it's not about a feeling. It's about a choice in that moment. Psalm 42. What does Psalm 42 say? Where am I gonna anchor my hope? My hope is in the Lord. In this moment, I don't feel hope, but I'm gonna anchor myself. I'm going to choose to rejoice in this moment that God is in control. Then next, he says, let your gentleness, uh, verse three. Actually, not verse three. Verse five, let your reasonableness. That's sometimes ch- translated gentleness. I think sometimes it's translated uh, moderation, if you got the old King Jimmy. Let your moderation be evident to all. It's talking, I think, about contentment because this is not the typical word for gentleness. He's talking about as you move out in life and realize this is talking about Paul here who's in prison, doesn't know if his life's gonna turn out. Be content. How's that going to work out for you when money's gone, relationships are gone, physical strength is gone, you're worn out, you've got a hope in the Lord. Allow your gentleness, allow your contentment, allow your moderation be evident to all. Now why? Notice that next statement. And here's the truth of this passage. Because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. There are a couple of amazing promises in this. If you go jump back to the first context, whose names are written in the book of life. The Lord is at hand. And then finally, he ends down in the bottom of this passage, verse seven, it's the peace of God that's guarding your heart. Stop protecting yourself. Allow God's peace to guard your heart, which again is a military term of soldiers standing around the heart 
and guarding it. It's God's peace that sustains you. So in gentleness, he talks about being in gentleness because the Lord is near. And then finally, and here's where I want to land as we conclude, is this last, last section. Because notice what he says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, these are not empty words because, again, Paul's in prison. His life could end in execution, so he's first preaching to himself. Just as I kind of began this morning, he's saying, Paul, do not be anxious. Now, you will notice if you go to like chapter two, he actually was anxious. Anxiety is, a, there's natural anxiety and then there's kind of a spiritual broken anxiety. And Paul is saying, do not be anxious because what anxiousness denies is that God is in control. And the worst thing that could happen is that you take control. Anxiousness denies God is in control because you see a preferred future and you're like, God, I don't think you get it. The direction you're taking my life and what's happening in my life, this isn't what I want, this isn't what I need. I don't think you're on the right page. Anxiousness comes from a desire to control the future. Peace, the opposite of anxiety, comes from knowing who controls the future. It comes from resolving conflict. It comes from knowing my name is written in the book of life. It comes from knowing the presence of God is with me. And it comes from knowing that his peace wants to guard my heart. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Watch this. But in everything, anything, by prayer and supplication. And here's the key word. If you want to underline something, if you like that, this word thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. Okay, so when you ask, make a request, usually the way thanks works is after you get it right? Isn't that kind of how we do it? You know, you, you ask for something, and then they give it to you, and then you say, thank you. Well, notice, he's saying, no, 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 no. When your life, when, when it comes to standing firm in the Lord, you don't thank God when you get it. You thank God before you get anything or whether you get nothing. With thanksgiving, there is a prayer that starts and ends in thanksgiving, and that's the kind of prayer that enables us to stand firm. Now, what does it look like? It looks like our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And listen, linger there. Our Father, you are my Father. I am your son. I was adopted. I was adopted through your sacrifice. I was purchased. My life is not my own. It's been purchased at a price. Hallowed be, Father, hallowed be your name. What is God's name? He is your refuge. He is your shepherd. Father, I need guidance right now. He is, I need provision. God, you are my provider. You are my forgiver. You are my redeemer. Father, you can take the brokenness of my relationships and my circumstances and you can turn those out for good. Hallowed be thy name. It's dwelling in the name and in the presence of God and saying, in my life right now, Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. Thank you. That's thanksgiving. It's thanking God for who he is and thanking him for what he has already done and what he will do in your life. It's going back to chapter three for this Yodian Syntyche and saying, hey, listen, I know there's a conflict here, but the truth is we're eagerly awaiting a savior and one day all things are gonna be made new and your name is already written there. What are you worried about? What do you really think you're gonna get from her? It's not worth it. Don't be anxious, but instead pray with thanksgiving and then let your request be known to God. And what happens? If you know the Lord is near, if you know your name's written in the book of life, there is a peace, a peace from God that guards the heart. Here's what I did. You know, this morning I was kind of in a place of anxiety and you'll see me walking around if you get here early. 
I look kind of crazy probably, but anyways, I'm just praying. And I said, God, I thank you that your peace has guarded my heart. My heart just didn't know it yet. (laughs) And during the service, as I was singing, I was like, there it is. Now, I probably was looking for a feeling. I don't think he's talking about it there. But thank you, God, that you allowed the truth of that reality become a feeling in that moment so I can trust in you. So let me ask you, if you're running through circumstances of relational breakdown or circumstances in your life that are breaking down, would you just stop? And in those moments, you know, James says, uh, you know, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But you've got to, he says, stand firm. Because you have an enemy who's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And conflict is a great place, whether it's in relationship or whether it's in the circumstances in life that you start standing firm in the wrong things. And what you find yourself is not in opposition against another human being. Listen to me. You're going to find yourself in opposition to God. And that's the greatest conflict. Because my conflict is not against my brother or my sister. It's not flesh and blood. I need to be, in my heart and my life, a reflection of the gospel as I embrace somebody, as I love someone, as I am generous to them. Whether they have harmed me or I have harmed them, it doesn't matter. And then in the circumstances of life, I need to trust in the Lord of the storm. That the purpose of this trial that's come to my life is to show me who God is. And then for God to say to me, Jason, where is your faith? It's not anchored in you. It's anchored in me. And when it's anchored in him, there is a peace that others will say, hey, that surpasses my understanding. How are you doing that? But it's present for us, and it's ours in Christ. As we close this morning, I I don't know where this hits you. I know where it hits me. But I don't know where this hits you. But today, we want to celebrate communion together. And in celebrating communion, we come to the table, and we recognize we're accepted through Christ and Christ alone that God doesn't accept us because we've gotten it right. You know, God's power, it's only perfected in in weakness as we admit our need for him. So as you come to the table this morning, if there is something you need to address, if you need to simply just say, Father, I thank you for the trials of my life. I thank you that you're teaching me something. I don't know what it is. I'm not getting it yet. But I thank you that it will come. And I thank you that in this, there is something good you want to bring about. Let us just spend that time to really allow the spirit of God to minister to us to allow him to search us and know us, know our hearts, see if there's anything in us that needs to go. And you know what the simplest thing in the Christian life is, the beauty is? Change is repentance. It means to turn. To turn, to say, Father, what I see is not the truth. I now see the truth through Christ Jesus and what you've done. Help me now to walk by faith. It's to repent and believe, repent and believe. That's what the heart of God is looking for. Let me pray for us and those that are gonna serve communion. Will you come forward as we celebrate what God has done together? Father, I want to pray for us this morning these words out of Philippians 4, that the Lord is at hand. The kingdom of God is hand. Repent, Jesus says, and believe the good news. The Lord is at hand. So therefore, Bergen Park Church, do not be anxious. What are you anxious about? Where are you trying to take control? Where do you think God has failed you? Do not be anxious about anything. Holy Spirit, would you reveal the anything? But in everything, Father, in repentance right now, we're turning from the anxiety, we're turning towards the Lord. But in everything, by prayer, 
and petition with thanksgiving, Father. We present our request to you, and you tell us it's, it's a promise. The peace of God is going to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you that the Christian life is not something we can obtain. We can't hold on to it. It's, it's given. It's grace. But we have to set our eyes on the object of grace, the object of our faith. Jesus Christ, Father, the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Enable us, Father, to turn from the things of this world, to turn from the brokenness in our lives and turn to you. And Father, would you be the healer? Would you be the redeemer? Would you be the forgiver? Would you be the restorer? Would you be the light in the salvation, Father? Would you bring the power of God into our lives in such a way that others would see a new gospel story in us as we bring our trials and our, our challenges to you. Father, meet us here as we celebrate what Christ has done in breaking his body for us and his blood poured out that we might have redemption for our sins. Meet us here in the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.